Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about currency manipulation. It is the second of two special episodes and works best after listening to episode 95. In theory, currency manipulation should not happen. Most countries in the world have agreed not to manipulate their currencies, and that means they've agreed not to intervene in foreign exchange markets to weaken their currency and give their exporters a competitive edge. But in practice, a lot of people think that it goes on anyway. China's policy of large-scale intervention in the exchange markets and the significant undervaluation of its currency subsidize Chinese exports to the United States and make U.S. exports more expensive. that devalues their currency in order to take unfair advantage of the United States, which is many countries. So this episode is about ways to enforce an agreement not to do currency manipulation. We'll talk about the history of enforcement, as well as some of the current proposals floating around out there right now. There's a a kind of underlying question, which is why people are talking about this now. And and I think fundamentally the reason is that the dollar is fairly strong at the moment, though it's really not obvious that currency manipulation is the thing that's actually causing that dollar strength. Setting that minor detail to one side, we're going to focus on what you do if and when there really is currency manipulation. And we'll be joined by some special guests. My colleagues, Maury Opsfeld and Joe Gagnon, who are both senior fellows here at the Peterson Institute. Joe has been arguing for stronger enforcement in this area for years, doing so alongside another of my colleagues, Fred Bergsten. Maury's obviously recently come from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. He knows his stuff. Hello, listeners. Put yourself in the position of being the world's policeman. You want a system that is tough, and ideally a system that is tough enough that it never has to be used. So what you want is a process for identifying currency manipulation that would that would then trigger some kind of punishment. And that threat of punishment would be nasty enough and credible enough that people would look at it and decide, yeah, maybe we won't do that manipulating in the first place. Obviously, when you're picking the punishment, you need to make sure that it's going to be effective. And and you probably need to make sure that the punishment isn't too painful to implement. Otherwise, the the policeman, the enforcer, they might decide that actually, you know what, they they don't really want to follow through with the the punishment. And then obviously the the currency manipulating countries could see that and, and everything could just fall apart. Getting a tough punishment system set up that everyone agrees on is really hard. And that explains why the current systems that are meant to stop currency manipulation are so weak. The International Monetary Fund or the the IMF, they're the ones that are supposed to monitor currency manipulation. And in theory, they could call out countries that do it. But the punishment pretty much ends there. It's really only a name and shame exercise. Now, that, that's at the IMF, that not much would happen at the IMF. But in theory, if, if a country was named a currency manipulator there, then, then someone else could try to sue them over it at the World Trade Organization. And if they won, then the punishment could be tariffs. Tariffs. But that has never happened before. No one has ever won a dispute like that. And and it's just not certain whether the WTO law would would work, whether that would work as a legal strategy. 
And partly because of that uncertainty, the, the threat of a WTO case just doesn't seem to be scary enough to stop countries from manipulating. Now, the United States does have its own unilateral process for identifying currency manipulators. And so twice a year, the Treasury releases a report telling us about that. But even getting named there doesn't lead to all that much. So even within the U.S., U.S. law, the current enforcement mechanisms just seem fairly weak. And and it's not like we're the first people to have discovered this. Uh, This has been an issue in the U.S. on, on both sides of the political aisle for years. People tend to get most upset when the dollar is strong. They tend to blame it on currency manipulation. And they tend to really want the U.S. government to do something about it. And those complaints, that pressure in the past has actually been its own type of enforcement mechanism. The way it has worked is Congress starts threatening some kind of punishment, say quotas or or tariffs. And that threat gives U.S. negotiators leverage and the leverage that they need to go out and negotiate to get the offending country to fix whatever it's doing that was wrong. There is a famous case of this where it seems like this sort of pressure worked. Back in the mid-1980s, the U.S. dollar was really strong, and the Reagan administration had already imposed trade restrictions on cars and and steel, and Congress was threatening even more protection. And so the U.S. went out and used those threats as leverage and brokered a deal called the, the Plaza Accord. And basically, they got Japan, West Germany, Britain, and, and France, the other major economies at the time, to agree to make their currency stronger and to make the dollar weaker. Okay, so that, that was the 1980s, this episode, which, which is hailed as this big success. Later on, there was a separate episode that was not so successful. So that was in the 2000s. There was another wave of pressure, this time to get tougher on China for their alleged currency manipulation, also when the dollar was pretty strong. So then you had a bunch of different attempts to try and to try to deal with the problem. In, in 2003, in the Senate, Chuck Schumer and Lindsey Graham, they first introduced bipartisan legislation that tried to deal with this undervaluation of the Chinese currency. They proposed a 27.5% tariff on all Chinese imports if China didn't revalue. That number sounds specific, sort of scientific, But really, it was just halfway between one person's estimate that it was undervalued by 15% and someone else's that thought it was 40%. Science. Yeah. There were a lot of that type of law knocking around. By one count, there were more than 30 different laws proposed between 2005 and 2006 just on that China currency manipulation issue. There were also a few times when members of Congress tried to force the executive branch's hand. In the mid-2000s, under the the Bush administration, Congress wanted the U.S. Trade Representative to investigate China using Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974. Yeah, that's the the same law the Trump administration has been using to hit China with all of its tariffs today. And later, under the Obama administration, there were also petitions filed with the Department of Commerce to try to treat currency manipulation like a subsidy to Chinese exporters. The idea there being that commerce could then hit them with tariffs. But in all these cases, the U.S. executive branch essentially said no. Both USTR and Commerce refused to pursue all those requests. Now, just because Commerce and the USTR were saying no, and just because the legislation didn't go anywhere, it doesn't mean that the executive branch wasn't trying to do something at the same time. As all this was going on, they were basically playing good cop and using diplomacy to try and get 
currency manipulating countries to, to change their ways. The Bush and Obama administrations both argued that diplomacy would be more effective than, than full-on confrontations, partly because it was so important to the Chinese to, to avoid looking like they had lost face, that the politics of this made things really tricky. If you look at the headlines, that approach wasn't entirely a failure. The Chinese did let their currency appreciate gradually between 2005 and 2008, and then again after 2010. China's current account surplus fell from a really high level, about 10% of its GDP in 2007, to less than 1% of its GDP in 2018. But the process in getting there was slow, and it was really hard. It was made harder by the fact that sometimes the Americans decided to prioritize Chinese cooperation on other issues, like North Korea and Iran. And there were also fears that fixing the dollar's overvaluation too quickly, well, that could backfire. If the dollar weakened very suddenly, that could undermine its role as the world's safe currency. A lot of people in America thought that preserving that role was really important. And in such a political process, the interests of American companies also mattered. A lot of businesses didn't really want China to be designated a manipulator. They were making profits by making things at low cost in China and exporting them back to the United States. So just going back to the big picture of your, your enforcement mechanism, in theory, you had this good cop, bad cop dynamic going on, but the context at the time meant that the good cop was sort of too good. The threats lacked credibility because of the context in which the U.S. administration was operating. Now, it might have been easier had the IMF labeled China a currency manipulator, had they had that backup, but the internal politics of the IMF meant that that did not work. And then they ran out of time as the financial crisis hit and the Bush administration essentially needed cooperation from China on other stuff. And I'd encourage listeners to, to read Paul Bustin's book about this. Again, this is our second plug for the book. We really will do an episode about the book <laughs> soon. He's got a really great section on, on what exactly went on during that period. Paul's book is titled Schism. And my big takeaway from it is that the system didn't really cope all that well with China in the, in the 2000s. But since then, there have been a few attempts to try to strengthen it. So let's talk about those. One thing that's been done is provisions on currency manipulation have begun to be worked into America's formal free trade agreements. This is actually fairly controversial because trade and currency are kind of separate, according to the, the purists. They're managed by different bits of government. Trade deals are supposed to generate more trade. Exchange rates are about trade balances, the balance of trade. But really in this area, most of the big innovations have been in transparency. Um, and, and that's nice, but it's really more helpful when it comes to triggering the enforcement and not actually so helpful for, for the punishment bit. Another example is in 2015, when President Barack Obama signed some legislation that tried to toughen up on currency manipulation, something called the Trade Facilitation and Trade Enforcement Act of 2015. Uh, legislation gives us new tools to deal with uh, currency devaluations that are designed to undercut U.S. goods, U.S. exports, uh, and our balance of trade. Uh, this strengthens our ability to penalize countries that fail to live up to their obligations. That law meant that when the Treasury called a country a currency manipulator, there had to then be enhanced engagement between the U.S. administration and that country. I don't really know what that means. Does that just mean like a lot of phone calls? <laughs> I think so, basically, yeah. Okay, great. 
But there were a few sanctions added too. So for example, there's a U.S. government agency called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, or the OPIC, and they help companies get things like political risk insurance. What this law meant was the businesses operating in currency-manipulating countries couldn't get this political risk insurance. And also companies from other countries that, that were doing the currency manipulation got limits on their access to U.S. government contracts. And this enhanced engagement was also supposed to stimulate special IMF consultations. And finally, there's also some language in there that U.S. trade negotiators are supposed to think about this issue before deciding whether or not to negotiate a free trade agreement with a currency manipulating country. So this law introduced these sanctions. But but I guess the question is how effective they are at actually hurting the currency manipulating country or affecting their behavior. Recently, the Treasury labeled China a currency manipulator. That, that was back in August. I'm not sure China was that scared about being hit by all of these things. I mean, at least the, the Trump administration seems to be talking to them anyway about some kind of trade deal. So so one of the easiest things to do the Trump administration hasn't done. So let's talk now about some of the policies that might make enforcement tougher. These are the ones that are being currently floated by the Trump administration, uh, but also out there in, in the ether. The, the first proposal we're going to talk about involves Chad's favorite, tariffs. Tariffs. Now, remember those proposals in the 2000s to, to classify currency manipulation as a kind of subsidy? This is one of the things that, that people proposed when the dollar was strong. Well, on May the 23rd, the Commerce Department proposed that. Now, on the rule change itself, some might say that Congress should be the ones changing this by law rather than the department just deciding this. But there we go. I should say that the the rule is still only a proposal. It's going through an intra-agency process. We haven't seen anything further. We don't know what the timeline is either. The economic logic here is that a country that has an artificially cheap currency ends up giving its exporters some sort of unfair advantage. And so just like subsidized imports... They should be hit with tariffs or, under U.S. law, countervailing duties. That's what the Commerce Department is, is looking at here. And how this would work is that an American company would come forward and say, I'm being hurt by a competitor that's getting an effective subsidy through this currency manipulation. And the Commerce Department would then decide how much the appropriate tariff would be to correct for that. Now, on a basic level, this is designed to protect the affected domestic companies, but but also to annoy the manipulating country and, and perhaps persuade them not to, to do the intervention. An important detail here that has attracted a lot of attention is that the Commerce Department is actually giving itself the ability to decide whether a country is a currency manipulator. So the Treasury normally makes that judgment, but the Commerce Department wouldn't be obliged to follow the Treasury's judgment. Here's what my colleague Joe Gagnon thinks of the proposal. Well, my colleague Fred Bergson and I submitted a official comment during the comment period, and we both agree that this proposal has some merit. We can support it under certain strict conditions. Joe and Fred seem to be okay with the tariffs in principle as an idea. It's, it's the practical process of deciding them that they have a problem with. So the proposal that Commerce Department put forward says that the Commerce Department will normally defer to Treasury, will normally take Treasury's view 
but it reserves the right to disagree with Treasury. So I personally think that is a mistake. Commerce should not reserve that right. I don't, it's not Commerce's area of expertise. We shouldn't have two different parts of the government making different determinations on this issue. A commerce should simply defer to Treasury. That is my view. And I, could not, I would not support this proposal if commerce insists on having the right to overrule Treasury. I agree that it doesn't make sense for two different U.S. government departments to have different takes on, on essentially the same issue. Historically, the, the Commerce Department has been much more protectionist than the Treasury. Though, of course, now that the Treasury Department has called China a currency manipulator, even though it's not, maybe that distinction has changed. Though maybe that would go back to normal under a, a different administration. But overall, and listeners are, are going to be shocked to hear this, I think I'm probably a bit more worried about the whole tariffs idea than Joe. There's a really big question about whether it would be in line with America's international commitments, especially those at the World Trade Organization. In general, the global trading rules say that for something to be a subsidy, it has to be helping some companies or, or one sector specifically. In the past, this, this tariffs proposal was rejected because essentially the lawyers thought that currency manipulation was too general. It, it was helping kind of all exporters or, or a, a too big of a group of companies. It wasn't specific enough. And, and under that logic, the move could be challenged and defeated at the World Trade Organization. I do think that if the United States implemented this change, that other countries would definitely challenge it at the World Trade Organization through a formal dispute. If WTO dispute settlement didn't exist, then what could happen then is, is trading partners could just then simply retaliate against the United States doing this and, and kind of take matters into their own hands. But clearly what happens once you go down this path of the United States imposing tariffs is that then becomes the issue. It's the U.S. tariffs that everybody gets upset about and not the underlying currency manipulation. And when Chad says people getting upset about the tariffs, it's mainly Chad getting upset about the tariffs, just to, just to clarify. No comment. My other big concern is based on watching how policies like countervailing duties and its cousin, anti-dumping duties, how they actually get used in practice. Once these countervailing duties go on, they can stay on for a long time. Some of the ones that are on today have been on for decades. If what the U.S. government wants is a temporary way to counteract a country temporarily manipulating its currency, countervailing duties, these tariffs just aren't the way to do it. Tariffs aren't an on-off thing like what the Treasury or the Fed can do in financial markets. And also, the duties may not solve the underlying problem. Just like we've seen with tariffs imposed on steel because of subsidies, the tariffs just end up pushing the super cheap exports into somebody else's market. I asked Joe what he thought the, the biggest problems with the proposal were and, and whether he had a different option. So I think the main problem with this countervailing duty proposal, even if it's done the way I could support it, is that it's just way too underpowered. It's way too small. And it, it's very much dependent on specific companies making uh, requests. And that is a messy process that gets lots of lawyers involved. And it's expensive and it's a waste of time and money, really. A better approach would be for the United States, particularly the U.S. Treasury, if it determines that a country is exceeding reasonable behavior in terms of buying foreign currency to hold their currency down, to maintain large trade surpluses, you know, exceeding some reasonable threshold, so it's not de minimis, that 
Treasury should then go out and just buy an equal amount of that country's currency. And then that will fully offset any harm or effect that the first country's policies had. So you just basically don't even need to worry about how much undervaluation there is. You just say if they bought $50 billion of foreign exchange reserves, we'll buy $50 billion of their currency. And that will just neutralize the effect. And it will have a much broader impact than countervailing duties because countervailing duties do nothing to other industries that aren't petitioning. It does nothing to other countries, for other countries who also suffer from the subsidized exports. It does nothing for the lost exports from the U.S. or from other countries because they were made less competitive. I mean, there's all kinds of elements of distortions caused by currency manipulation that countervailing duties cannot reach. But countervailing intervention exactly reaches and perfectly and completely reaches. And so it's a infinitely better policy from that perspective. That brings us on to the second thing that everyone is talking about. Countervailing currency intervention. The idea for this one is, suppose a foreign government was buying a ton of dollars to keep its own currency weak and and give its exporters an unfair advantage. Then Joe and Fred say that the U.S. Treasury, ideally along with the Federal Reserve, should fight back like with like and and use something called countervailing currency intervention. So the U.S. Treasury has this pot of money called the Exchange Stabilization Fund or the ESF. And the idea would be that the Treasury would use the money in that fund and they would sell the dollars. They would increase the supply of dollars, and that would basically neutralize the effect of this other country buying dollars to affect the price of their exchange rate. So in theory, if other countries just realized that their intervention was going to be neutralized by this countervailing currency intervention, they wouldn't try to manipulate their currency in the first place. But in practice, for this to work, the Treasury needs to be able to sell a lot more dollars than it currently has in the Exchange Stabilization Fund. Here's Joe. I think the biggest issue I see is that the U.S. Treasury currently does not have sufficient firepower. The Exchange Stabilization Fund currently has about $95 billion worth of assets, of which around $75 billion worth are in dollars, or these things called special drawing rights. For a small country, that might be fine, but for a country like China or Korea, who have $500 billion in the case of Korea or $3 trillion in the case of China, in foreign exchange reserves, $75 billion is just way too small. It's not credible as a threat. So I think Congress would need to give the ESF more firepower, either by excluding the ESF from the debt ceiling or by raising the debt ceiling. This idea has some really obvious advantages, especially over the tariffs. It targets the problem. It's supposed to undo the distortion in the price caused by the currency manipulation. And it's also one-off and pretty easy to reverse. But there are some big questions out there, mainly about whether or not it would work. So so first, there's, there's just the practicality of it. You're, you're the treasury, you're having to use your dollars, and you're buying something else. So, so what do you buy? Supposing you're counteracting the EU or Japan, you have to buy European or Japanese sovereign debt. That pays negative interest rates right now. There's a reason people want to hold the dollar stuff and not the other stuff. So you're just left holding all the stuff that people don't really want to hold. There's also the possibility that in response to these big interventions, financial markets completely freak out. 
They think there's going to be some kind of currency war. Everyone rushes into dollars and that ends up making the dollar stronger, the opposite of what you're trying to do. And finally, you could get, you know, the currency manipulation, the countervailing intervention, and then the currency manipulator could retaliate. And, you know, there could be a full-blown currency war, and who knows what that would look like. Here's Maury Obsfeld in his reaction. In the cases of of large countries, and China in particular, where the uh, options to buy RMB, uh, you know, remain somewhat limited, um, it's either infeasible or, or barely feasible in the Chinese sense, or you'd really have to do very big interventions to get any traction, I believe. And, um, you know, I just, I just not sure I see that as very realistic. You know, if we're looking at a smaller country, you know, say you're upset, uh, with, um, you know, Malaysia, you know, I suppose we could, we could, we in the U.S. could buy up their entire bond market, you know, but, but when you, when you, when you, get to that level of economic aggression against a smaller country, you know, it begins to have geopolitical ramifications that you might not want to um, contemplate. So, you know, at some level, you know, I sort of view the the suggestion as, you know, one that elegantly avoids the, the route of using trade policy as a response to exchange rates, which I think everyone agrees is a really bad idea. But, um, you know, I would just question whether it's it's really going to be workable in practice. Joe and Fred do say that this should only apply to other members of the the G20, the the group of 20, and and not smaller countries who might only be following the bigger manipulators. I think my biggest concern is that you'd have to be willing to do massive interventions for this to be credible. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars would be needed for it to work. Joe's book says $500 billion for the ESF, but even that's under the presumption that the Federal Reserve would match whatever the Treasury intervened with. So in reality, you'd have a trillion dollars worth of intervention. And that basically means handing someone like President Donald Trump a ton of money, and that obviously could be abused. We've seen what the president has been willing to do going against the spirit of trade laws. Maybe it's a good thing that he only has tens of billions of dollars and not hundreds of billions of dollars to play with in currency markets. I'm going to sound like Chad here, but um, there's there's a separate question of whether this supports or, or undermines the multilateral system. The plan that Joe and Fred outline in their book essentially involves the U.S. just just doing this unilaterally, hitting other countries without permission from the IMF. And their idea is that this U.S. unilateralism would force other countries into action. They would essentially realize that they they couldn't stop the U.S. from doing this, and so perhaps they could try to manage it, and that they would it would force them to come up with some kind of process for this countervailing currency intervention to happen. So, so ideally, you'd end up with with some kind of IMF-sanctioned intervention system where where countries could fight back in currency markets after the IMF had given the green light. And Joe and Fred have actually called for the U.S. to support a candidate to head the IMF only if they pledge to fix the lack of enforcement in in the currency manipulation rules. I know I sound like a a broken record here, but I think it's really important to work on and with these multilateral institutions. Doing it that way is what gives you legitimacy and not just people feeling like they're being bullied out there. Now that said... Getting agreement within these multilateral institutions is obviously extremely difficult. 
there's an argument that we only got the World Trade Organization because it was was meant to counter U.S. unilateralism in the in the 80s. So sometimes these destructive things can lead to something better, but it does really need to be part of the plan. I've yet to see the secret plan. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Joe Gagnon, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Be sure to go and read his book with Fred Bergsten, Currency Conflict and Trade Policy, a new strategy for the United States. We'll be sure to post links to Joe and Fred's book, as well as some of their other research on the episode page at our website. That's www.tradetalkspodcast.com. And thanks finally to Murray Obsfeld, former chief economist at the IMF, now a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute, and also class of 1958 professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to episodes about currency manipulation, two really are enough. That's it. This is number two of two, enough. It's almost like you don't really enjoy talking about currency, Chad. Let's go back to tariffs. Tariffs.